Well, I've been speaking to you on a number of weeks now on the same subject because I think it is outside of the pure gospel itself that Christ died, was buried, and resurrected. I think it's the most important subject I could address today with a local church audience, and that is our worldview. Worldview, by definition, means the way you look at life and interpret it, the lens through which you look at life and then interpret life. And so people have different worldviews, a very secular, atheistic worldview in which it gives no recognition of God at all. Now, here we're seeking to teach and train so that our people will have a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview. George Barna is a Christian pollster. He's the Gallup of the Christian world. He's recognized as being very, having great integrity in his polling. He's a Harvard graduate, also a very outstanding Christian. And Barna is well-respected in the polling field. His studies say that in the 1950s, 40% of the Christians, now even back in the 50s, only 40% of professing Christians in America would have what was called a biblical worldview. But today, that number has fallen to 10%. Now, he said, if you go in a church and ask people, do you think you have a biblical worldview? They'll almost all tell you, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a member of this church. I have a biblical worldview. But he said, ask them some questions, and you'll find out that uh, they don't all have a biblical worldview, even in good evangelical Bible-teaching churches. For example, the whole area of sexuality and the whole area of marriage, for example, is one of the most outstanding and easily recognized tests of worldview today. You ask somebody, what do you think about divorce? You'll find out whether they have a biblical worldview and immediately, divorce is a key question. Or you ask someone, what do you think of abortion? Or what do you think of homosexuality? Or gay marriage? Or transsexualism, that you can change your gender, you know, the gender benders. And you'll find out real quickly whether people believe the Bible and they are drill down deeply into the core values of Jesus Christ and the Scripture, or whether they have room now in their thinking that these things are moving. And I could go into the law, how people view the law, or how people view uh, economics. You see, this is pervasive. It goes into every area of our life, our worldview. All the data coming into my brain, I'm going to interpret that data and I will either interpret, with a, interpret it with a biblical view of it, or I will interpret it through whatever other worldview I may have picked up. So we have been going through this very methodically and systematically. Now, I've likened it to putting a puzzle together, to put our worldview together. And the first piece of the puzzle was God himself. We start with God. Everything starts with God. And then we moved on to man, that God created man in his own image. And then we moved from man to sin because sin came into the world. And in one day, everything changed. And then God sent his son, 
God became human flesh and came and lived here on the earth and then died on the cross for our sins. And then last week, the resurrection. Thank God he didn't stay in the tomb. He is alive forevermore, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now today, we move to the last major piece of our puzzle. It's called restoration. Will God restore the world? It, and for us to find the answer to that, we'll begin our reading today in the book of Acts, chapter number three. And if you'll turn there with me, Peter is preaching a sermon to some people in Jerusalem in the early days of the church. And if you will stand with me, we're going to read beginning in chapter three of the book of Acts, and we're going to begin reading in verse 19. Look in your, follow with me in your Bible, please. And we're going to use our Bibles a great deal today. So in Acts chapter three, now in verse number 19, Peter said to that group of people, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, forgiven. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, and here's the phrase, until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now that phrase, I want you to, it's key. Underline it in your Bible when you're seated here in a moment. The times of restitution of all things. The times of restoration or restitution of all things. And thank you, and you may be seated. So Peter speaks about the times of restitution. Now, if you look up the word restitution there in your, in your uh, Greek or Hebrew language, you'll find out it means the same thing as restoration, that all things will be restored, that everything that we have lost in the fall, the fall of man, then all of that will be restored in the Lord Jesus Christ that there will be a time when sin does not dominate and rule and control everything in our world. Now, I said this is the last piece of the puzzle. I'm going to preach on it a time or two more, but we're nearing the end of our story now. We're getting close to the end after seven or eight weeks of God, man, sin, and then after he deals with sin, of course, at the cross, the resurrection, and now the restoration of all things. I remind you what I've said to you, I think I said this in the first message, that the Bible is God's true narrative of all of history. People today are being taught in secular universities and colleges and even in high schools that the Bible is not accurate history. I wanna tell you that the scripture is accurate history because the scripture is accurate, period. God's word is true, and it's true history. And as you read those early chapters of Genesis, you find out as you, it, it, it makes such a logical presentation. Now, the thing is, I told our church Wednesday night that do you know there's 2,000 years from the creation of 
the world and the universe until the flood. And that's all covered in seven chapters in the book of Acts or book of, of Genesis. So you got 2,000 years there just in seven chapters. It's just popping off big periods of time real, real quickly. But the Bible is God's true story, his true narrative of human history. And people have all kinds of different views about history, but I can tell you one thing I'll bet you we all agree upon today, and that is that something is terribly wrong with this world. This world is a broken place, and this is a wonderful time for me to make that statement because all you have to do is look to North Korea, look to Iran, look to the streets of America today, look around at what is happening in Florence, look around at why we're having a man into a church to address the drug issue. You can see that there's trouble on every hand, that there is all kinds of evil dominating, not just our world here in America, but all over the world universally. And we would all agree something is terribly broken in our society, in the world around us today. But it wasn't always so. Don't think it's always been like this. You see, God created a perfect world when he created it. In fact, in the first chapter of Genesis, it says that God saw everything that he had made, and it says what? It was what? Good. Everything was good when God finished his creation week. And the world when universe was beautiful. Now, it still is. You can look at some mountains and see scenes and all that, and you can see that there's great, great beauty in the world today. But even so, it's not what it was. It's been marred by sin and by evil. And so God created this beautiful, overwhelmingly awesome universe it was full of life. There was no death. Nothing died until sin came because the wages of sin is death. There was no death. There was no sickness, which is usually the precursor of death. And so there was no pain. There was no sorrow. I've been to the hospital two or three times this week and watched people as they stand there not knowing about their loved one and looking at people suffering and visiting a member of our church who has now had the second of his legs removed from his body because of disease in his body. And everywhere I go, I see the evidences of pain and of sorrow and, and that life is, that the world is broken, if you will. But when God created it, there was none of that. There was no sickness, no pain, no sorrow. There were no broken relationships. There were no divorces. There were no lawsuits against people who had harmed them. Everything was harmonious. Every relationship was wholesome and well-ordered. And God designed us to live forever, to never die. And then in one day, everything changed. Everything changed. Now, throughout this series, I've talked to you about the ultimate questions because, you see, your worldview answers the ultimate questions. Your worldview answers ultimate questions. And by the way, we all ask those ultimate questions. 
Where did I come from? Who am I? What is my purpose in being? Is there any purpose at all in life? And most of all, the thing that plagues so many people today, why is there evil? And why is there pain? And why is there so much suffering that we have to endure in life? If God is a good God and he's all-powerful, why does he let that kind of stuff happen of pain and suffering and so on? Those are important questions. Answer those and you pretty well have answered the big issues of life. So let's go back and let me try to put that together for us this morning. First of all, I remind you that evil began in heaven. People think about heaven as being a perfect place, but even heaven has been marred by evil now. And evil began when Satan rebelled against the Lord. Now, I don't have time to read the passages. If you want to just note them there in the margin of your Bible somewhere, if you want to know what caused Satan to fall and how he fell and the biblical description of it, you can read Isaiah chapter 14 and you can read Ezekiel chapter 28, which describe evil coming into the universe because Satan in his pride rebelled against God. And there you have the first of evil. But he wasn't content to let it remain with his own heart. There was a war in heaven, the Revelation says. He was tossed out of heaven with one-third of the angels who, for whatever reason, chose to follow him. And then God created the earth, and God created man and woman, and then Satan tempts them. And you know the story. And I want you to turn with me the book of Genesis, chapter 3, because I want to rehearse that again so that when we come to the solution, you will really have a grasp of the problem. And so Satan here comes and God has warned Adam and Eve, don't you eat of the fruit of that tree. There was a test involved, a test of their will, a test of are you going to obey God or are you going to obey your own impulses? That's still the test today, by the way. That's the test going on in your heart today. Am I going to obey God or am I going to follow the desires of my own heart? And we always have been confronted with that. So Satan comes and he tests Adam and Eve, and they fall. We refer to it as the fall. When you hear a preacher talk about the fall, he's not talking about somebody tripping on the stairs. He's not talking about a physical fall. What we're talking about here is a moral fall where Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and evil came into the world for the first time. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what is sin? It's disobedience to God. What is evil? Evil is always defined as disobedience to God. And so evil entered the universe that day in the temptation. You see, people say to me, well, why did God even let that happen? Well, because God wanted people to love him freely. If he had made you without the capacity to even make a choice, if he had created you so that all you could do would be to love him whether you wanted to or not, you'd just be a robot. You would be an automaton. You would be a computer. You would have no will, no choice of your own. I was made to love God. That's not love. Love, by definition, has to have a choice to do the opposite. 
And so God created Adam and Eve with a will, with freedom to make a choice in their life. And they made that choice that day to choose to please themselves rather than to be in obedience to the Lord. And here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, by one man, referring to Adam, by one man, sin entered into the world, and listen to the rest of the verse, and death by sin. sin death came when Adam and Eve made their choice to rebel against Almighty God. And then what happened, okay? In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, you have your Bible there? And in verse 14, God pronounces a curse. Now get that word curse that I'm using this morning, a curse. He, and what does curse mean, the way we're using it? See, when I hear the word curse today, I, somebody's using profanity, right? That's a curse. That's not what's happening here. What is a curse? Somebody, uh, some occultist pronounces a spell upon somebody. Some witch puts a curse on. No, that's superstition. I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that either. What is the curse referred to in Genesis 3? The word is used several times there. Cursed. Verse 14. Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle. You see it right there in the middle of it? What is the curse? It means that God pronounces punishment upon the entire universe and everybody involved in this matter of sin. Because sin has come in, there is contamination morally, moral contamination. Moral disease now has entered into the creation, spiritual disease. And so God inflicts punishment on the world because sin came in. I get that. That's what the curse is. And in verse number 14, the serpent is cursed. You know what the Bible says before the fall that the serpent was the most beautiful of all creatures. And then God says, now you're going to be the lowest of all creatures. You're going to crawl in your belly. You're going to eat little rodents and they're going to be covered with dust and you're going to be covered with dust. We don't really know who that serpent was. Was the serpent, is it speaking symbolically about uh, Satan literally, or is it speaking about Satan taking possession of this being? It seems that's what the case is. But here's the thing. Don't think of a snake crawling on the ground like a copperhead that uh, I ran and I saw in the middle of the street and killed this week as we were down there in our subdivision. That's not what it's talking about. The serpent pre-fall was a beautiful, intelligent being of some kind at the top of the creation chain underneath man. And then because Satan possessed that being and used him, perhaps willingly, we don't know, then God said, cursed be the serpent, really meaning the representation of Satan himself. In verse 16, he says, cursed, he pronounces a punishment upon the woman. Because you led in this, Eve, you will bear children in pain. And you're going to know sorrow throughout your life. And you're going to be ruled by your husband. And you ladies that are 
have been touched by the modern philosophy of the world. Don't get mad at me about that, but just read history and see if that's not been true. Thank you. In verse number 17, he then turns to the man. And he said, and you're going to labor, and you're going to toil, and it's going to be frustrating because the ground is not going to willingly give forth its produce. And you're going to feel a sense of futility. And you're going to have to work hard. Now, later he says hard work is good, by the way. He's not, hard work is not the curse. It's the result of the ground not producing as it originally did. And so when the curse is removed, the earth again will be how many times more fertile than it is today? We have never seen fertility of the earth and production like God originally made it to be because we've always lived on this side of the fall. And then in verse 17, he said, cursed is the ground. The ground, the earth itself, the elements, the basic elements of which the world is made. And he said, cursed is the ground. And then he says something interesting. The symbol of the curse will be thorns. Thorns and thistles will grow up. What are thorns? Thorns are, first of all, a symbol of the curse, but they're painful. All of us have pricked ourselves with a thorn or a thistle somewhere in life. And every time you see a thorn on a rose bush or a sand spur in your yard, remember why it's there. That it's a symbol of the sinfulness that dominates the universe. Do you know what's interesting? What is really fascinating to me, when Jesus Christ came to the earth and was dying on the cross, as I've been describing the last few weeks, they put on him a crown of thorns. Why did they put a crown of thorns? Because I believe thorns represent the curse. And he took the full brunt of that as they pierced his, his head and the blood flowed down his face. It was the full force of the curse being carried out in the body of Jesus Christ. And then he wore it as a crown. He said, I'm going to rule over it. And he was breaking the very power of sin in his body there. In verse 19, he, another part of the curse is death. Every living thing will die, and every living thing will return to the dust. There's not anything that has this mystery of life that only God can give. Nothing that has life that will not die because the wages of sin is death. Now, that's the curse. It involved the serpent. It involved the woman giving birth in pain. It involved the man laboring and toiling and futility and struggle throughout his entire life. It involved the earth and everything that grows out of the earth being contaminated by it. Romans chapter 8 even says that the whole creation groaneth in pain and travail until now. It likens the nature itself being in the throes of a childbirth, some sort of contortion and convulsion there. It involves in verse 19 physical death, but look back in verse 15. I skipped it. 
because there's the first promise of a redeemer that someday out of a woman will come a seed, a man, and this man will bruise, crush the head of the serpent representing Satan. And victory will come back to the world. The world will, in fact, be restored. And down in verse 21, this is such a rich passage. You could preach on it for a month. The Bible then says that after they had sinned, we still see God's grace. Isn't it wonderful? God always is a God of grace, isn't he? Even in the midst of the curse and the punishment upon sin, God comes and shows grace to them. And what does he do? He kills a couple of animals and he takes their blood and he covers their sins. And symbolically what he does is he makes for them some clothing, some coats of skin, representing the fact that he has covered up and made an atonement, a payment for them, at least on a temporary basis until that seed of the woman can come someday in the future. This is the curse. The ultimate question is, why is there so much evil and pain and suffering in the world? Right there it is. It's sin. We invited it in. And every one of us, being the descendants of Adam and Eve, carry within our body and in our genetic system, in our chromosomes, we carry that tendency, that propensity to sin. We don't have to sin, but we choose to sin. We do sin. Somebody said to me one time, well, preacher, I don't think it's fair that I have to die for Adam's sin. And I said, don't worry about it. You don't. You have to die for your sin. All Adam did was give you the propensity. He just helped you pointing you in the right direction. But don't, you're not dying for Adam's sin. You're dying for your sin, friend. No. Get it. You have to think this through, you see. Now, the thing is, the world, that causes people a world of problems. Do you know I read the other day that most atheists reject their belief in God because of some deep, deep pain or hurt in their life. I know a guy that grew up in this church and he was a professed believer in Jesus Christ until his mother died prematurely while he was a very young man. Today he claims to not know if there's a God or not. Do you understand though, ladies and gentlemen, that's no reason to deny the existence of God because of your own pain. There are people sitting in this building today suffering tremendous pain. It should turn you to the Lord, not away from the Lord. But you see, this is not the problem for a Christian that it is for other people because we have an explanation for evil. If you ask an atheist or an, an, an agnostic, why do you th he says, why is there pain and suffering and evil? Well, he doesn't know. There's no way he can ever come to an answer of that question. But you and I can answer it because the God who wrote the Bible, who gave us his infallible word, that God says, your pain and your suffering, whether it be to you personally in your body or whether it be a madman threatening to nuke us from North Korea, whatever it may be, the root of it all is the same thing. It's evil, it's sin. It's rebellion against the God who made us. Remember, though, that evil was not a part of the story originally. It was not a part of God's plan. 
It was a choice that man made to rebel against God. Evil was introduced not when God created the heaven and the earth, but when man chose to go his own way. So now, having said all that, I must hurry. Let's talk about the restoration of all things. We have an explanation for sin and for evil and for suffering that no other worldview offers. Now let's talk about how it will be restored. Because you see, people have always dreamed of a better world, haven't they? You've probably dreamed and wished for a world where there was no war and there was no hatred and there was no severe illnesses and there were no handicapped children and there were no murders and there were no drug addicts and and a thousand other things that we all face. No poverty, no ignorance. We've all dreamed of that that world without pain and violence and evil in it. It goes all the way back to the ancient days. Aristotle wrote about utopia, a better, a perfect world, but he didn't have an answer for it. Plato wrote a book called The Republic, how to set up a government that would create a perfect society, but it hasn't worked. Cicero, the Roman, wrote about a better world, Plutarch, The Roman philosopher wrote about a better world, and a thousand other writers and poets have written about it. Musicians have sung songs about this ideal world, this world of peace and prosperity and kindness and love, kings and parliaments and senates and legislators have tried to create an ideal society by passing legislation but in not one case have they been able to create that new world. It's been interesting to me in my studies in my life to read about Karl Marx, the founder of socialism and communism. And Marx must have had some sort of a Christian influence in his life at some point. Because sitting alone in that British library, library studying and coming up with that most evil of all systems, communism, he wrote that we, through communism, through the common ownership of property, the ultimate form of socialism, we will create, this was Marx's term, quote, a new man. And for 70 years in China, and now longer, uh, and, and, and in Russia, the Soviet days. They tried a new society where the government would own everything and be pure socialism and people would lose the competitive spirit and they would get, live in harmony. You know what the result of that evil diabolical system was? In Russia, 50 million dead in the gulags and in China, 70 million missing and dead under Mao Zedong. It hadn't worked out so well. You young people today, you go to college and they're telling you socialism ought to be the wave of the future. Man, I, I don't even want to get on that. That makes my blood boil that we would be teaching that to our young people in America today. 
No, it didn't work. It didn't work. Because it doesn't deal with the base problem. The base problem is the evil in man's heart, not the economic system. Turn to the book of 2 Peter with me, if you would, please. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. God has promised us something. He promised us he would restore all things. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, we began to read the description of that restoration. Beloved, be not ignorant, 2 Peter 3 and 8, be not ignorant of this one thing. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as men count slackness. But the Lord is long-suffering. He's patient to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the day of the Lord, this is the restitution, will come as a thief in the night into which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are there, therein shall be burned up. This will happen at the end of the millennial reign. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be? In other words, how ought you to live in all holy conversational lifestyle and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, see there he says it's a promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein will dwell righteousness, not pain and war and strife and hatred, Go to the right again to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, almost to the end of your Bible today, Revelation chapter 21. And if you'll read there, beginning in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And then if you'll go down to verse number 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. No more crying. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne, the Lord Jesus said, behold, I make all things new, restoration. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and they're faithful. And if you'll go over to chapter 22, Chapter 22, and verse number one, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And note this, underline this, don't ever forget it. And there shall be no more curse. For the first time since Genesis chapter 3, no more curse. The earth will be restored to its pristine state just as she came from the hand of God back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1.
Let me remind you, though, that that process has already begun. I just read you the description at the end of it. Do you know when it began? It began at the cross. When God came and judged sin in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus bore that curse for us. Go to Galatians chapter 3 in your Bible. Galatians chapter 3. And in verse number 13, you'll find a wonderful, wonderful verse. I hate to take the time to turn there, but I want you to be able to see this and mark it in your Bible. Christ at the cross redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And he took that crown of thorns, the very symbol of pain and suffering and of the curse, and he wore it. And the blood coursed down and was shed for Bill Monroe and your sin. And he was made a curse. He bore the ultimate punishment of Almighty God in His body. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world hung there for us. Restoration began at the cross and has continued to this day. Someday it will be complete. Ever since Genesis chapter 3 in that fall, we've been in a war. And most of you, honestly, I don't think you believe this. You are in a spiritual war where the same devil that slithered up and tempted Adam and Eve that day is after your mind. And the Bible says your mind is the target. Your mind is the target. It's your thinking that he's after influencing Somebody goes out and gets drunk. That wasn't the devil. That was your flesh. The devil is dealing with bigger things than whether or not you get drunk or not. That's not even on his list. He's after your brain, your mind, your thinking process. Because as a man thinks, so is he, right? Is that what it says? So he's not dealing with small potatoes, I look after a woman and I lust after her body. That didn't come from the devil. That can't, that's my flesh. It's out of control. He's after my mind. And what does he want? He wants me to focus on pleasing Bill Monroe and living the life the way I want it, not the way that God said for it to be lived. That's the battle. The, and every battle has its casualties. And Satan picks off our own people. And we see casualties among our own flock here because they they don't have the biblical worldview. But in spite of that, the earth's golden age is coming. The war will come to an end. Every sin is going to be punished. I'll talk to you about that next week. Every wound will be mended. Every tear will be wiped away. Every wrong will be righted. In the times of restitution. But if you're like me, and I sometimes think this, God, why don't you do something? 
Why don't you do something, Lord? Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 again. You were just there, but turn back. If we, we went to Galatians. God, why don't you do something about all this pain and suffering and evil that's going on in conflict in the world? Well, do you know what 2 Peter 3, 8 says? And hear me well. God is doing something. It's not God is sitting passively in heaven and nothing is happening. God is in action every day. You know what God is doing right now according to 2 Peter 3.8? He's not slack concerning his promises. He's extending mercy. He's extending his grace. He's giving people a chance. It is not his will that anyone perish. And so God waits. Don't you misperceive his waiting as being passivity. It is because God knows there are multitudes out there in the world. He is giving that rebellious world an opportunity to repent. He's not in a hurry because he doesn't measure time like us. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is a del- as a day. And what seems like waiting and delay to us is God extending mercy and grace, which answers another one of our ultimate purposes. What's our purpose here? Our ultimate question is rather, what's our purpose? Our purpose is he gave us a command. And that we would build our lives around getting that gospel and that salvation message to every creature on this earth. And to be lights. To live in a way that people out in the world will see the gospel lived out in our lives. And they'll be drawn to worship the one true God. And not everybody will seek his mercy. Millions will reject it. But some will. My question to you is, have you sincerely sought God's mercy today? Are you under the blood? Hearkening back to the book of Genesis where God took the blood of those animals and temporarily made payment for the sins of Adam and Eve until Christ could come. Are you trusting only and solely in the blood of Christ? Are you under his mercy and in his grace? And if you are, are you doing your best to get this message out in our society that is so dark and steeped in sin today? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.